according to her account, it, it's close to a decade uh, of of abuse uh, that uh, she says even included being forced to have, have sex with him uh, inside of an office inside the state capitol. It's important to keep those those informants under very close supervision because you have to remember that most of the time, a lot of the time, when you have an informant, it's somebody that is in the criminal field. That's, that's why they know these people and they're able to to make these recordings. Own up to your mistakes and move forward. We don't expect perfection from our government, but could they at least take responsibility when they screwed up? You're listening to Pod Sui, the week's top stories served a la carte. Subscribe at thegreatvoice.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Bombshell allegations against former Speaker of the State House Lee Chatfield when his sister-in-law accused him of sexual assault dating back to when she was a teenager. Chad Livingood had the story for Cranes Detroit, and he talked to Paul W. Just to kind of get people up to speed, last week there was a leak out like Thursday evening uh, that a story was coming that um, former House Speaker Lee Chatfield, uh, allegations from his his sister-in-law that uh, he had um, sexually abused her or assaulted her as a teenager and continued to do so up until last July. Um, she's now 26 years old, he's 33 years old, and that there was a state police investigation underway. We confirmed all that. And then uh, over the weekend, Friday, Bridge Magazine reported an exclusive that they had an interview with this woman, Rebecca Chatfield, going public about her story, uh, detailing how uh, she, she alleges that Lee Chatfield groomed her uh, as a student when he was when she was attending the private Christian school in northern Michigan that Lee Chatfield's dad, Rusty, runs uh, as affiliated with his um, Baptist church uh, in northern Michigan up in Emmett County near near uh, in the Levering area in Burt Lake uh, near just just south of Mackinac City. Um, it, this story from Bridge, and I'll give full credit to them, they, they, did, they did some tremendous reporting. Uh, they talked with, with Lee's brother. Uh, who detailed a whole lot of new allegations involving Lee's conduct in, in office, saying that he basically served as a driver, drove, and, drove Lee around to strip clubs and rendezvous with other women. And, and Lee, uh, on Friday as well, uh, through his, uh, as a, his criminal defense attorney now, uh, came out with a statement and admitted that he had had multiple affairs uh, during his marriage. He's a married man with five children. Oh my God! Uh, but is... he denied that he uh, he denied that he assaulted his uh, his sister-in-law, saying that they've had an affair that's been going on for years. Uh, according to her account, it, it's close to a decade uh, of of abuse uh, that uh, she says even included um, being forced to have have sex with him uh, inside of an office inside the state capitol. Uh, pretty, Did that was it the um, Bridge Magazine uh, story? that pointed out that she said she sometimes uh, reached out to him, that she sometimes contacted him for them to get together. And she has no ability or right to be able to do that if she was 14 or 15 when that happened. But is that the story from Bridge, or was that floated out to try to make him somehow look better? Because there's nothing that can make him look good in this whole story. I mean, nothing. He better that be on suicide. He should be on suicide watch. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know where he's at, but um, but that was in the bridge story. 
Um, and I would encourage people to, to go read Bridge Magazine's story. Um, even as a competitor, they, they, they have a very deeply reported story. They talked with, with uh, Rebecca Chadfield for weeks uh, in the month of December. Uh, as she prepared to go public, she had already taken her complaint to the, to the Lansing Police Department because she still uh, resides in Lansing and some of the alleged assaults occurred. Um, but she describes years of basically being controlled by Lee Chatfield, um, even while she got married to his brother um, and 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 they they started a family and such. And, and Lee continued to have his own family and, and rise to power. Uh, the story also details um, uh, just a lavish lifestyle Lee Chatfield was living which we have to start to really scrutinize and wonder how. Legislators in Michigan make $72,000 a year. This, this story detailed how his brother would, was, was his chauffeur and would take him to the Shinoa Hotel for, for, to party and for rendezvous with other women um, and other types of ritzy hotels and, 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 and high-priced meals and such. Now, there's something of, a, of, of another story to this is this. Is the is the use of legislators who have these five hundred one c four nonprofit organizations that are not their campaign fund, but in my mind, Paul W, they are a legalized slush fund um, that lets legislators take unlimited contributions without having to disclose it, and they they can say that there's some kind of a quote social welfare organization. Lee Chatfield's group <clears throat> spent almost a half a million dollars in 2020, the year he was termed out of office, on travel, meals, and, and entertainment. Um, they're, they're simply a, a way to hide money in politics. And, that, and, that's, and that's one of the things that the, that the story comes out and talks about is, is it makes a lot of allegations of misappropriation of funds. I think that's going to be maybe potentially part of the of the investigation by the state police is how this fund was used. The Justice Department has brought sedition conspiracy charges against Stuart Rhodes, leader of the Oath Keepers, and 11 other defendants in connection with the January 6th, 2021 attack on the Capitol, claiming the siege was premeditated and not just a peaceful protest that got out of hand. Former U.S. Attorney for Michigan's Eastern District, Matthew Schneider, with Guy Gordon. A lot of people have been charged in these D.C. events, right? Over 700 people have been charged for events at the Capitol. And these really range in context. They go from low charges, misdemeanors, or people who are trespassing in front of, in, inside the U.S. Capitol when they shouldn't have been, to, to high crimes of violence and people who were assaulting police officers. And we don't even have a charge against those people who left the pipe bombs in front of the Republican and Democratic committees. So this is far from over. But now what we see is the Justice Department has brought a charge of seditious conspiracy. There's a couple different ways to use this charge. What we think about as people, when we think of the term seditious conspiracy, we think of people destroying by force the government or levying war against the United States or trying to overthrow the government. You know, that's one part of that law. But if you look at the other part of the seditious conspiracy law, it simply says anyone who conspires to use force to delay the execution of a law. That's what that part says. And that's mm -hmm. what looks like people did. They, they tried to stop the certification vote. They tried to stop the electoral college vote from happening. That's not overthrowing the United States. That's not levying war against the United States. 
But you know what, Guy? That is trying to delay the execution of any law. And that fits precisely within the statute. And that's why they've been charged with it. Interesting. Now, we have heard people in the wake of January 6th say, well, look, this was this was was not that big a deal because it wasn't like it was an armed coup. You can't call it insurrection because, uh, you know, if this was really an insurrection, there would we, well, now we know that there were weapons on the other side of the Potomac and that they were hoping for a second wave. And there was a rapid strike force, in the words of this uh, guy that they've recorded, saying that that was the, what was going to happen. Does that change the conversation? Does it undermine those that have tried to diminish the seriousness of this? Well, what really it takes is a very careful reading of the law and what they can be charged with. You don't necessarily need all those things. You don't need all of those violent acts. You don't need all of those weapons in order to violate this law. All you need is force with a group of people to conspire to delay the execution of the law, as I said, or to seize the property of the United States. When people force themselves into the building using a violent act to get inside and to say, this is my capital, I'm seizing this capital, it's my property now, well, it, it appears that you've violated the law. And that doesn't mean that you've had to even use a gun to do that. It's, it's mm-hmm. a lot more simple, and that's why they've been charged. I'm, I, I've, I've got to run here, but I, I wanted to ask you, we know this week the Justice Department uh, creating a domestic terrorism unit. Uh, your thoughts on that in your former workplace, and, and also help me address some of the concerns that this could be used to politically harass partisan groups on partisan ground. Right, that's always been that's always been the concern. After September 11, an international terrorism unit was established in many U.S. attorneys' offices across the country, and there was fear that that would be used improperly to strike out against people who were exercising their First Amendment rights. These same arguments, guy, are going to come out again. You know, where people are going to say, hold on a second, you're creating a special unit to do what? To go spy on me at the school board or to do things like that? You know, look, if we have good prosecutors and we have a good system where people follow the law, then we won't have problems. And we all pray that that's exactly what's going to happen. It remains to be seen. The investigation into the alleged kidnapping attempt of Governor Gretchen Whitmer has taken multiple twists and turns from the lead investigator being fired due to a domestic violence situation after a swingers party to the attorneys for the alleged conspirators claiming his clients were set up and that it was the FBI agents and informants that plotted the kidnapping. Now those attorneys are calling for the audio captured by a hidden microphone on a key fob to be released. Former federal prosecutor Michael Bellotta discusses the case on all talk with Tom Jordan and Kevin Dietz. I'm looking at this thing and when uh, when discovery has to be turned over, they don't just turn over everything or do they or do they pick and choose the parts that they want to give you? Do you have to request it? How do you go about getting everything that might exist? Yeah, that's a good question. The the uh, with discovery, it really depends upon the, the federal prosecutor. When I was a federal prosecutor, I would try to turn over it as much as I, I could that would not endanger for instance, an informant or compromise an ongoing investigation. So they don't have to turn everything over. There's certain things they do have to turn over, like statements of witnesses they're going to call at trial, the criminal record of the defendant, any physical evidence they're going to use at trial. But but the best the best course in my view of prosecutors to try to turn over as much as you can so that you don't get caught like what happened in the governor or the sorry, the Senator Ted Stevens case up in Alaska where you don't turn over something that you should have turned over. So 
So prosecutors should be able to identify something that uh, should be ethically turned over and, and the, the idea is right. that that will get done. Um, in, in this case, and I guess it gets to the heart of the situation, it's these, these informants. Uh, are the informants the ones who are pitching the ideas to, to kidnap the governor or is it the defendants? What are we learning from all this extra uh, audio or video that's being captured on these uh, spy gadgets? So what, what it seems like, um, and first let me tell you, what as the FBI, what you want your informants to do is you want them to act like a fly on the wall, just to be listening. And that's what what uh, I think that they wanted the informant to do. The one informant that they're, they're focusing on in these, these recent pleadings is somebody named Ro- Robeson. They wanted Robeson to do that, but according to the defense at least, Robeson was more interested in being a leader and and planning the actual kidnapping as opposed to just listening to the others do so. Um, the fact that Robeson paid for, you know, uh, some, some travel and, and uh, lodging and brought in food and such, I don't think that that's problematic, but, but with these, these heat fob recordings that the, the defense is trying to play for the jury, it could be that Robeson or, or other informants are directing the plot and that could come dangerously close to the area of entrapment. And that's what the government wants to avoid. Yeah, you know, the FBI seems to have fumbled, uh, you know, looking at this case in a number of places. I mean, the the lead agent was arrested for beating his wife after a swingers party. There's this informant you just mentioned, apparently turned out to be a double agent, Stephen Robeson. Right. And he was paid about $20,000 to do this while at the same time allegedly organizing anti-government meetings. Is it is it far-fetched, do you think, that these informants may have gone too far in other aspects of this case, as the defense claims? It's not at all far-fetched. That, that does happen. It's very important when you're the FBI and you're the, the actual handler of the informant. Every informant has a particular FBI agent that is assigned to be his handler or her handler. And it's important to keep those, those informants under very close supervision because you have to remember that most of the time, a lot of the time, when you have an informant, it's somebody that is in the criminal field. That's, that's why they know these people and they're able to, to make these recordings. So you're de- not usually dealing with, a lot of times you're not dealing with somebody that's particularly reliable and, and, and truthful. You have to have checks and balances. You have to check on them. And, and one thing that they could do is they could ask for a, what's called a consensual Title III, a consensual wiretap, where you're still listening to the informants, all the informants calls, so you know what he's up to. Um, and certainly I, I've had cases where we would, we would just look at recent phone call toll records to just make sure that the informant is not calling people without telling us. So that's how the government. So those those things are important. And when when you don't have control of your informant, really bad things could happen. And it sounds like Robeson was doing those bad things. He was telling people to destroy evidence, and he was warning people in the conspiracy of the of the alleged conspiracy of uh, their impending arrest. And that's not that uncommon. Though I had that happen in one of my cases before I left the U.S. Attorney's Office a couple of years ago. Chuck Rizzo, who was the head of Rizzo Environmental Services, that we was an informant for the FBI and was making recordings. But at the same time, we learned later that he was tipping people off and telling them not to use their phones and such. So, so he was he was double dealing, and that ended up getting him time in prison. He, he's serving about six years where he he would have served a much less sentence if he hadn't done that. So, being keeping close tabs and checking on your informants is critical. The Michigan Auditor General will be releasing a report on Monday showing that COVID deaths in long-term care facilities, such as nursing homes, have been vastly underreported by the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. 
State Rep. Stephen Johnson heads up the House Oversight Committee, and he discussed the findings with Guy Gordon after Guy asked him about some news that broke just minutes before the interview. You know, let me just ask you about, I, I know it's it's not necessarily in your bailiwick, but, but I'm sure you deal with businesses uh, that are within your constituency. What do you think about this split decision from the Supreme Court that health care workers do face a mandate, but 84 million workers and uh, employers will not? Obviously, I'm I'm glad to hear that they got it right uh, dealing with OSHA's powers uh, with regards to just businesses over 100 employees. Uh, that was way too much of an administrative power grab. But uh, quite sad to hear about the healthcare workers. I mean, there's a lot of really good healthcare workers out there. Now they're gonna have to choose between their livelihood and getting a shot that you know they don't think they need. A lot of them already have had COVID. They've got natural immunity. Um, and now they're being told that that's not good enough. Uh, so that's sad that the court got that wrong, but I am glad that they got the, the business mandate correct. You, you've been looking at the other side of the COVID uh, policy issue, and that is more or less what happened in those early months of 2020 when COVID was ravaging our nursing homes and this, uh, this growing feeling that we did not have a proper accounting. You asked for one. The Auditor General responded. And while we don't have the full report, we do have something preliminary. What are you hearing, and how does that change our thoughts? Right. So if you go back to the start of this, you had Governor Whitmer placing COVID-positive patients into nursing homes. We didn't know a lot about COVID, but we knew that nursing homes were probably full of people that were the most vulnerable to this disease. And so if there's one group of people that we should really be careful about, that would be the population. And yet she still placed COVID positive patients there. When we tried to figure out, all right, was that, how bad of a decision was that? The nursing home death numbers that we were getting from the department were leaving out certain facilities. So we asked the nonpartisan independent auditor general to go through and get a proper accounting of just how many deaths occurred in nursing homes because of COVID. And it looks like the preliminary numbers show it's about 30% higher than what the Whitmer administration initially told us. Okay, and, and, and what is, kind of, at least from, from my experience, a highly unusual thing is you've got the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services not just replying to the Auditor General and giving their side before the report is released, which is the normal function, but they're doing it publicly. And one of the things that the director and others have said is, this isn't a fair count because you included facilities that weren't required to report. Does she have a point? Well, well, I mean, there's a couple things there. I mean, all right, just first off on this whole idea of we are counting facilities that shouldn't be counted, that's absolutely absurd, and she knows that's absurd. Uh, if you look at what happened here is in Governor Whitmer's executive order, it was applied to all long-term care facilities. Now, the number that we got from the administration early on was only certain facilities that were required to self-report. There was a whole other bucket of facilities that were subject to the order, but they did not have to self-report, so we did not have those numbers. That was okay. the whole purpose of us asking for this audit, was to make sure we got those numbers. And now the director is trying to act like those shouldn't count, like those lives were less important somehow. She knows that's not the case. She's trying to confuse. She's trying to deflect away from this. Because they know there's a big mistake here, and they don't want to be held accountable. And quite frankly, it's shameful. They should take responsibility for their actions and move on instead of trying to confuse the people in Michigan. It shouldn't matter how big the facility was. All those facilities were subject to that order, 
and the number that we have from the Auditor General is an accurate yeah. number. And a life is a life. You know, that's and that's, that's the thing. It, it it discriminates between those based upon where they chose to live. And and that, that's we, we needed a, certainly an accurate accounting. One of the things that I found surprising, it seems that the department's biggest complaint with the AG's report is that it counts COVID deaths uh, from people that may have had COVID but died of something else unrelated. And that's somewhat ironic because we've been asking for the past several days with Omicron, we can have a large number of people that are testing positive but are in the hospital for something not related to COVID. And when we've asked them why they aren't changing the reporting requirements, we've been told, well, that would be an undue burden of paperwork on already burdened hospitals. And I get what they're saying, but for her to use that as an excuse when we seem to be compounding the mistake that she's highlighting here doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. Yeah, it, it's convenient how this works. When they tr- want to try and scare everyone and talk about how terrible things are, then they don't get into the difference between dying with COVID and dying because of COVID. Uh, but once it gets down to the nursing home death numbers and they're realizing it looks very bad for them, now all of a sudden they want to start distinguishing between those. Uh, it, it is very convenient for them. Uh, and that to me just shows once again it's an administration that refuses to take responsibility. They're always trying to find excuses, and that should not be the case. Own up to your mistakes and move forward. We don't expect perfection from our government, but could they at least take responsibility when they screwed up? All right, so what have we learned here with these new numbers? We now know how many died in the nursing homes. How does that change our approach with the COVID-19 or any other highly infectious disease. If you and I, let's just for the sake of argument, it's the spring of 2020 and you and I are a couple of old geezers playing checkers in the old folks' home. An employee brings COVID into our facility. Is it wrong that we stay in our facility? Should we have to move out? Well, you have to remember, we had different hubs throughout the state that were designated for individuals that they had COVID, they had to leave the hospital, and instead of sending them back to a nursing home and, you know, spreading COVID throughout the entire nursing home, we had designated hubs throughout the state that we could send them there while they recover. And I think that really was the best solution. There was no good or perfect option out there, but the idea of, hey, we're just going to actually forcibly put this person back in with a vulnerable population that made no sense when we had other facilities that would have worked far and away better. They'll do it for Podsui this week. For full episodes or anything else you might have missed, go to thegreatvoice.com. See you next time.